I want to look at uh, this, and, and I'm, this is, we're doing something, I'm going to do something I, I rarely do, because this is, this is going to kind of go off. It's not going to be an exposition of the passage. We're, this passage is just kind of a springboard to some thoughts about Christmas and about what is going on here, and I, and I, I don't even know how to introduce it very well. So I'm just going to, the first thing I want you to see, and it's on your sheet there if you have your sheet, I want you to see this, this message, the Christmas message, is revolutionary. Uh, I like to put it this way, you know, the gospel's not good advice, it's good news. And that's a huge thing. That's a very important point for us to think about. Matthew does not start it by saying once upon a time, right? It's not like a fairy, fairy, you know, fairy tale story. It's not like a legend or a myth. It's not like Star Wars. As much as I like Star Wars, it's not like Star Wars. Because when it starts off like once upon a time or in a galaxy far, far away, it means we all know this didn't happen. And it's just, just a fun story. But Matthew doesn't start that way. He starts with a genealogy. He starts with a historical record. He's grounding this in real history. And why? Well, the reason why is because the gospel is not good advice. It's good news. And that makes all the difference. Because advice is just some counsel from someone about what you should do or how you should live. It urges you. Good advice urges you to make something happen. News news urges you to think about something that has happened. It has already happened, and then how do you respond to it? That's the difference between advice and news, because advice is basically saying it's all up to you, all right? So that, so that if, you, if you have, uh, you know, if we, if we think about times when maybe countries were at war and an army was approaching a city, what, what, what would happen? They'd get the people who knew the most about warfare and say, how do we defend ourselves? How do we defend our city? Yes, you need to build a ditch here. You need to make barricades here. You need to set things here. You need, that's the advice. But here's what the difference is. News is you're in, this, you're in this city and you hear that an army is coming and your king has raised an army and he goes out to meet them. And suddenly back comes a member of your king's army to say, great news, we won. We won. See, now that's not advice. That's news. And what happens when you get those great news? You get something. What do you get? You get, well, you get peace. You're not going to be conquered. Your, your loved ones aren't going to be killed. You reap the benefits of the bearer of the good news of what they did for you. This is what the gospel is. The gospel is not advice. It's good news. It's something that's been accomplished. You send messengers And what did God do? The Christmas story. He sent messengers. He sent messengers to to tell us the euangelion, the gospel, the good news. And the messenger did not say, here's what you need to do. The messenger said, we have tidings of great joy. Something has happened for you today in Bethlehem. This day has been born a Savior. That's, That's good news. That's not good advice. Now we respond to the advice. That response is, is different. It can be in all kinds of different ways. And this is something we always talk about when we worship together. How do we respond? How do we respond to what we sing? How do we respond to what we hear? That's the response to the good news. But the good news is saying something has already been accomplished. 
So we don't say, oh, isn't this sweet? The Christmas story teaches us how to be better people. The Christmas story is not, it's not a story about how we ought to live. It's not an inspiring story. I mean, think about it. What would, if you looked at it that way, what would the Christmas story be inspiring us to do? Be shepherds, right? Have birth on the ground in straw? No, that's not what it's doing. It's not once upon a time. It's not a nice story on how to live. It's an announcement of what's been done. And unfortunately, sometimes in churches, when people talk about salvation, they talk about it in terms of advice. If you know anything about how other religions relate, it's always in terms of advice. Salvation is always advice on what you have to wrestle with and what you have to struggle with and what you have to perform and how you have to pray and how you have to read and you have to obey and transformation of consciousness. If you're, you know, all these kind of things and all these other religions, they have founders and their founders taught them, do this, do this, do this. It was all advice. Jesus came and said, I am spiritual reality and I have come down to you. The ideal has come down to where we are, to the real. Ideal has become real. You could not get up to me, so I came down to you. And the gospel lays out how he came down to us. And it's a, and it's a foreshadowing of, of, of uh, his coming. We tend to put ourselves in charge of our lives. That is, we take God's place in our lives. And so God had to do this. He put himself in place of us, where we deserve to be, outside, in the cold, no room. Jesus was thrown out in the cold where we, kind of spiritually speaking, deserve to be so that we could be brought in. So you see, Christianity and Christmas is not primarily about self-improvement. It's not about guidance for life. Now, Christianity has guidance for life. There's no doubt about that. It has things where we go, okay, this is, but that's not the point. Those follow In every other religion, those things you do so that you can achieve salvation. In Christianity, God grants us salvation, and then we respond. It flips it. It turns everything upside down. And there are implications for how you live. But he's telling us something here. He's telling us as this message, this message is revolutionary. Because the gospel is not good advice, it's good news. And this genealogy that, we've looked, that, that is here that, that I didn't read this time, because every time I read one of these genealogies, I know people are hoping I'll say a bad word accidentally in one of those names. So this morning I'm not doing it. I'm not giving you the joy of that. That's my Christmas present to you. This genealogy tells us something. This genealogy starts at, in a factual manner. This is how, boom, you know, the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So the message is revolutionary, but the second point, all good stories point to the story. All the best stories are really kind of true. And and I want to explain this for just a minute. C.S. Lewis really kind of uh, fleshed this out, and, and I love some of the stuff he wrote on it, and I've got a lot from him. But one of the things that bothers most modern literary critics or film critics is the still pervasive appeal of fairy stories, of fantasy fantasy stories in people's lives. I don't know how to explain it. This really bothers them. We're supposed to be more realistic. 
But what do we see? We see Grimm's fairy tales recycled all the time in our culture and in other cultures, on books, in movies, on TV. They come in all forms. Our, the superhero films all follow that. The same themes that come up. And this kind of upsets critics. And I'll give you, I, I thought I wasn't sure to do this, but this is a guy, his name is Anthony Lane. He, he writes for the New Yorker magazine. And he was writing about the, um, uh, one of J.R.R. Tolkien's movie, books that has been written, written in the movie. And he goes back to the book. And he says this, it is a book that bristles with bravado. He's talking about the Lord of the Rings. It bristles with bravado. And yet to give into it, that is to enjoy it, to cave into it, as most of us did on the first reading, betrays a certain nerdishness. Okay, that's kind of true. A reluctance to face the finer shades of life that verges on the cowardly. Now, what is he saying there? What does he mean? He's saying these stories, these fairy tale stories, these great stories, Beauty and the Beast, Sleeping Beauty, Peter Pan, Hercules, King Arthur, the Skywalker series, you know, all of these things, what is he saying? They didn't happen. They're not factually true. And, and the problem is they, they kind of touch us. They, they kind of uh, uh, resonate with us in, in these, these kind of, the, deep in the human heart is this desire to escape death. Deep in the human heart is this desire for the supernatural. Deep in the human heart is a desire for a love that never parts, that never fails. A desire to somehow not age, a desire to, to realize your dreams, a desire to fly, a desire to communicate with other non-human beings like angels, a desire for good to triumph over evil, right? This resonates with us. And when well-told stories, maybe movies, maybe books, maybe plays, good ones, they tap into this and they're incredibly moving, incredibly satisfying. And even though we know they didn't happen, they resonate with us. We, th- we begin to understand something. This is what our hearts long for, that we really are enchanted, that we really have come under the power of a sorcerer or something like that, that we really weren't meant to die, that we really could defeat death. And so here's beauty and the beast, and we sense there must be a love that can break us out of the beastliness that we've created in ourselves. And here's sleeping beauty, and we sense that there's some noble prince that's going to come and destroy the enchantment that we're under. And we hear these things, we see these movies, we, we, we read these books, and they touch us somehow. They create a longing. Why? Because they're touching a chord in our heart that we were created with. Something deep we wish were true. That the ideal would break now into the real, to where I live in my real life. And Anthony Lane says, no, no, no. That's not true. And he says, to hope for that is a form of cowardice. His point is, buck up and face the real world, the, the reality the way that it is. Don't believe in that stuff. Because to believe in that stuff is a weakness. It's not a, it's not a strength. He says, if you read these stories, you'll start to believe in moral absolutes. That there is a real right and wrong that is right and wrong no matter what. You read these stories and you'll start to believe in the supernatural. You read these stories and you'll start to believe that there can be a triumph over death. You read these stories and you'll believe the possibility of living forever is true. And he says, you're not living in reality. Then you're a coward and you're running from the truth. And so we, here comes the Christmas story. And here's a story about someone from outer space. 
who breaks into this world and has miraculous powers and calms the storm and raises people from the dead and heals people. And then people turn on him and his enemies put him to death and all hope is lost. And then he rises from the dead and salvation is available to everyone. And we hear that. And what happens? What do people do? What a good story. What a heartwarming story. Man, wait till Peter Jackson gets his hands on this one. It'll be a trilogy for sure, right? Jesus Christ is the underlying reality which all these stories point to. Jesus comes from the ideal world that we sense is there, that we long for, our heart longs for it. Even though sometimes we go, I can't be true. Live in the real world. And God is saying, I did and I do. He broke through. He punched a hole between the ideal world and the real world and he came. And if Jesus really lived, and I believe he did, and if the Bible is right, and I believe it is, and if Matthew here is right, and I believe he is, then guess what that means? There is an evil sorcerer in this world. And we are under an evil enchantment in a way. And there has been a noble prince who came and he rescued us. And there is a love that we will never part from. And we will fly someday. And we will defeat death. And the world is not ruled by pure chance, by tooth and claw. And someday the trees will dance with joy. In other words... Even though all those fairy stories out there, all those fantasy stories, all those science, all those types of stories, they're not really true factually. They point to truth that our heart resonates with. The great theological treatise that I love is the movie Hook. And in the movie Hook, Maggie Smith plays an older Wendy from the Peter Pan story. She's really old, and she's, grow- she's talking to the grown-up Peter Pan, Robin Williams, and he has, like, amnesia. But he senses something about these stories. But he lives in the real world. He lives in a world where there's, there's you know, uh, it's the world of business back and forth, and companies raid other companies. It's the real world, and it's dog-eat-dog. Dog. And at one point, she looks at him, and she says, Peter, The stories are true. The stories are true. And I remember the first time I watched that, she said that, and I got this little thrill. It was like, that's an exciting thought, because then I could fly. How cool would that be? And when we understand the genealogy of Matthew, we can get that little thrill. It's like we're, under, we're, like we're struggling with amnesia, and, and Wendy is telling us, Peter, the stories are true. Bob, the stories are true. All good stories point to the story. And the third thing is Jesus Christ turns the world's values upside down. Now, you might look at this genealogy, and you... And, 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 we kind of look at that, and that's not something we're familiar with, but it's a resume, basically. This is what this is. This is a resume. And in those days, a family was important. Clan was important. Pedigree was important. Who you were connected to is incredibly important. Who you came from. Do you want to know me? Well, here's my family. Now you know me. That was that idea. And so people, people looked at you based on where you came from. And back then, 
just as we do today, people monkeyed with their resumes to make them look as good as possible, right? So if you started out in college and you flunked out and then you went to a different college and graduated like someone I know did, then, then probably your time where you flunked out is a convenient part to leave out of your resume. And right now there's some people here who hired me at First Church that are going, wait, what? What did you just say? No, I, I, I actually told the truth, so... We tend, to, we tend to leave those out. Herod the Great, at the time when Jesus was born, he was known for the fact that every once in a while, his genealogy was updated and names disappeared. Because he'd say, that son of mine is no good. Kill him. They killed him. He goes, now take his name off my resume. Take his name off my genealogy. I don't know him. And that, that would happen all the time. And so what happens when we look at this? And, and last year and, and, and kind of the year before, we spent some time looking at this resume, looking at who's in this resume, because Jesus didn't leave out the bad people or the people that most people would leave out. You rarely saw, you never saw a resume with women in it. It's always the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of. This resume has women in it. And the women... Rahab the prostitute, Tamar, who, who committed incest because she was being uh, refused to be given her what was due her by, her, by law. Roth, Ruth, Ruth, Ruth the Moabite, I just combined two words. Ruth the Moabite, a hated half-breed. And then the big one with King David. If you look at, on your sheet there, if you look at... Verse 6, it says, And Jesse, the father of King David, and David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Isn't that an interesting way of phrasing that? Whose mother, don't want to mention her name, had been, right? And what do we see there? Think about this. This is the resume of Jesus Christ. And what do we include from David? A horrible act of rape and murder. He took his best friend's wife. When David was at his lowest point and running for his life from Saul, one of the men who stood with him and defended him at risk of his life was Uriah the Hittite. And then David steals his wife. And through, through military, you know, he, he had Uriah killed. And that's what's included. I love this. This is so interesting. This is not, you know, David who, who killed Goliath. This is not David, the great king and the ruler. This is not David, the writer of scripture. This is not David that we're told is a man after God's own heart. This is David, the murderer. This is David, the rapist. This is David at his absolute worst. And he's in the genealogy of Jesus Christ that way. Isn't that interesting? David. What do we see here then? We see moral outsiders, cultural outsiders, racial outsiders, gender outsiders, and they're all in Jesus' genealogy. The law was against all those people. And Jesus is owning them. He's owning them. Why? What does this tell us? What does this tell us? He's not ashamed of us. We're all in his genealogy. Jesus is owning the worst of David. He's owning the worst things that could happen because he brings everyone in. We're all invited to this party. 
No matter who you think you are or no matter what you've done, the kingdom of God is available to you. God's grace covers everyone. We sang earlier, all, all sin and shame is removed. There is no shame anymore for us in Christ. Everyone on that list needs the grace of Jesus Christ. From the lowest to the highest, we all need His grace. In Jesus, prostitutes and kings sit down as equals. Male and female, Jew and Gentile, moral and immoral, we're all together in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and He owns every one of us. I don't care what your lowest point is, and if maybe you're in it right now, Jesus owns it. He's with you in it. He says, yeah, you're my kid. I love you. Yeah, but Jesus, I'm, I don't care. I love you. I do care, but it doesn't change my love. It doesn't change it one bit. The grace of Jesus is so powerful that we see even his genealogy is dripping with grace. King David has nothing on us. We're all in this together. He loves us all. You know how sometimes you might feel ashamed of someone in your family? Somebody who's done something stupid. Somebody who's done something evil or just dumb. Jesus is never ashamed of us. He's never ashamed of us. In Hebrews chapter 2, it mentions that he is never ashamed of his children. And so it shouldn't matter here either, should it? We should never be ashamed. Never be ashamed of someone who's here. We can get a lot out of a boring genealogy. So the message is revolutionary. All good stories point to the story. Jesus Christ turns the world's values upside down. And finally, in Christ we find peace. I think this is, this is such a cool thing. Verse 17 says, Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to Christ. And so we, we, what do we do? We're Westerners. We start adding them up. You know, we say 14, 14, 14. I'm going to divide by 7, multiply by 3, 6 and a half, you know, something like that. We, we come up with something like that. But what we see is that there's this tremendous symbolism here. Because this is telling us that Jesus is the seventh Seven. He's the seventh seven. We know God rested on the seventh day. The Sabbath points to that rest. We know that every seven years, the Jews were commanded to let the, lot, let, let the uh, land lay fallow. So the land regenerates every seventh year. We know that every seventh seven, every 49th year, all debts are forgiven. All slaves are free. The land rests. The people rest. It's all about rest. God rested on the seventh day. The Sabbath day is the day of rest. It's all about this idea that there is a rest. And Matthew is saying all the sevens in the Bible point to Jesus. Everything points to him. So no matter who you are, you could be a king or a prostitute or anybody in between. It doesn't matter who you are by the world's reckoning. God says this rest is available to you. This rest in Jesus. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to prove that you're worthy of it. I want to do better in my life. I do want to change the way I behave because I know that pleases him. But I don't have to do better to know him and to know that he loves me. And for many of us, we need rest. 
Isn't it amazing that it, we get to the time of Christmas and it's the time where we sometimes have the least rest? We need rest from the troubles of this world. The trouble is we're always trying to make everything go good for us and we're trying to make everything go perfect for our kids and for our church and for our job and everything else that we stress over. And it's exhausting. But what does that tell us? It tells us that all these stories are true. Someday we will meet our true love face to face and he will turn our beastliness into beauty. Someday we will meet our true noble knight who will slay all the dragons and put everything right. And someday our great captain, who broke down the wall separating the ideal from the real where I live, through the power of the Holy Spirit, eventually all of this will fall and the glory of God will cover the whole earth. He's telling us that's what we look forward to. I don't care, as we sang, I don't care what season of life you're in right now. You can find rest in Jesus. He gives us that rest. This is what this is all about. This genealogy, this is what it's all about. This is what it's telling us. These are the practical applications of this scripture that lays it out in a way that oftentimes we just go, oh boy, name after name after name. But God is telling us something here. He's telling us this. The message is revolutionary. He's telling us all good stories point to the story. He's telling us that Jesus Christ turns the world's values upside down. And in Christ, we find peace. In Christ, we find peace. It is real and it is available to us in the most stressful of times. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the implications of your word as we explore these things. They, they, we, we're taught and we learn and we grow. And we want to grow to become more like Jesus, more like your son. We thank you at this time of the year for the gift that was given. We did not deserve it. We do not earn it. You give it. And it is good news. And now, Father, as we look forward to Christmas Day and this week and all the, everything that's involved with it and family and friends and parties and all of these things, help us to rest in it too, Lord. To rest in the fact that you sent your Son for us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to take an offering. As they come forward, I just want to mention that if you're visiting, you're our guest. We do not want you to feel compelled to give.